Well, we have heard prayers of assurance in Christ. We have just sung songs of assurance in Christ as well, and that is certainly necessary as we come to our text this morning. Join me in your Bibles, John chapter 15, and we are looking at verses 18, and it goes through chapter 16 through uh, verse 4, John 15, 18 through chapter 16, verse 4, and it is a sobering text. You can see by the title of the sermon, it's a sobering text. And it could not be more of a contrast from what we've looked at for the last two weeks in Jesus' call to love in verses 12 and 17. Love one another. Because the passage before us is not a passage about love anymore. It's a text about hate. Hatred from the world because of Christ's gospel. Hatred directed towards Jesus' followers because of their relationship to Christ. Hatred, satanic hatred, that knows no bounds and seems to have no limits. Let's read the text, starting in verse 18. We're just going to read through verse 25 this morning. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. You can stop there. You can see the warning. Eight times in eight verses, we find the word hate. It's maseo, Greek word, strong word. That means to detest or abhor. Two times we read, we read the word persecute. That word carries with it the sense of being chased by a wild beast. Look down to chapter 16. Jesus will even give examples of what this hatred and persecution will look like. Verse 2, Jesus promises they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. That is to say this, you will be exiled from your community. You'll be dismissed from the public square. You'll lose your family, your friends, your jobs. Since the synagogue was the heart of Jewish society and culture. Jesus then adds, verse 2, you will also be killed. An hour is coming for everyone who kills you. That's a premeditated act. It's a conscious choice. So this is the night, really the early morning before Jesus dies, and there is a dramatic shift. Chapter 13, Jesus is filled with humility and acts of service. 
Chapter 14, Jesus gives his apostles words of comfort. Chapter 15, there's promises of love. But now Jesus issues a warning of coming hatred. Hatred against the Christian from the world. Now let's put this passage in its historic context when John wrote this gospel. John was there. He certainly heard Jesus' warnings here. But when John writes this gospel of John sometime in the 90s, John has already experienced Jesus' promise firsthand. This passage is not theoretical for John as he pens this book. It's extremely personal. At this point, John is the last living apostle And he's already become an outcast. That was promised. He'll become an outcast. He's already an outcast, not only from the synagogue, but from the world, his life. He's been exiled already onto Patmos, first century Alcatraz, under the emperor Domitian. Why? Because of his faith in Jesus. But when John writes this promised hate, it's not limited to him. No, Revelation 1, John calls himself a fellow partaker. We're in this together, John says. He's suffering with his brothers and sisters in Christ, so much so that 1 John 3, John writes this, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. This is no surprise. No surprise not only because Jesus predicted this, John 15, but because you're experiencing this. That's the historical context here. But we can also put this in the early Friday morning context as well when Jesus said it. The warning here for the apostles is clear. Not only, not only is gospel hatred coming for Jesus, just a matter of hours, but gospel hatred is coming for each of them as well. One commentator put it this way, these apostles not only need to be prepared for the trauma of seeing what will be done to their master, they also needed to be prepared for the trials and adversities they, that will become their own experience for the remainder of their lives in this world. Jesus is preparing his apostles for coming persecution at this point. leaves one other context. It's our context today. Because admittedly, it is difficult to make sense of Jesus' promise here living within our American Christian culture. We who do not experience what so many Christians throughout the majority of the world experience. After all, we offered a prayer this morning thanking the Lord for the freedom that we have to worship today. We're not fearing government officials barging in. Why? Well, one answer is because religious freedom, that kind of safety from formal gospel hatred that's been built into the founding of our country. But we must also understand that there is no guarantee that we will always be immune from Jesus' promise here. There's no guarantee of that. In fact, I think we can see that the reprieve we've enjoyed for so long is quickly coming to an end. 
Why do I say that? Well, because conversations that I've had with many of you in this room, there are people in this room who have, right now, gospel decisions they will have to make. Decisions that could carry with them drastic consequences. And for all of us, there will be gospel stands we will be called to make. And those stands could be costly. Our jobs might be on the line. Our income might be affected. Our freedoms might be removed. Why? Because the culture that we're living in is becoming more and more blatantly hostile and aggressively intolerant to anything that has to do with Jesus. Now, we know the issues right now that are at hand. We know these issues. Will we, as Christians, deny the creator's authority and accept transgenderism as a legitimate biological option? It's an issue. Or will we call it sin and then call that person within that lifestyle to repentance? That's a gospel issue. Will we as Christians deny our Savior's holiness and redefine homosexuality as something other than sin? That's what Washington State Law SB 5722 tells us to do. That law makes it illegal for a counselor to quote unquote convert a minor who's experiencing same sex attraction. That's homosexuality. So our state has deemed homosexuality off limits. And our call to repentance. Back in August 2021, a judge actually dismissed a case that questioned the legitimacy of that law. The judge actually upheld the legality of that law. This is the Romans 1 downward spiral playing out right in front of our eyes in our country. You can turn to Romans 1. This will be up on the screen, but... Another passage I want to look at. You can turn to Romans 1. And you see the spiral, and you see a repeated phrase this is God turning sinners over to their lusts, their desires. This is what is called the wrath of abandonment. God abandons the people to their own sin. Start in verse 26, though. Verse 26, we read this God gives the people over, he gave them over, and then notice, to their degrading, that's dishonorable, translated as vile, sinful passions. What are these sinful lusts in the sight of God? For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural, so that's lesbianism. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. That's homosexuality. Men with men committing indecent, sinful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So you have the LGBTQ movement. It's a part of this Romans 1 downward spiral. But if you're in the text, notice Verse 28, that's not the bottom of the spiral here. Verse 28, we read this, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, so God's out of the equation, God gave them over, and watch this phrase, to a depraved mind. 
an illogical mind, a mind that makes no sense, to do those things which are not proper, and even to invent new sins, new things to do. Which is, I think, the explanation of what happened on Friday in Wisconsin. I don't know if you've seen this. There was a group of high schoolers who were reading Bible passages in front of a movie theater. There's a group that came over, tore the Bibles out of their hands, and tore the pages from the Bibles, and then actually took the pages and started eating them. That's a depraved mind. That's inventing evil. Look at verse 32. We're reaching the bottom of this spiral. Those who practice such things, here's the bottom now, not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's the end of the spiral. We do them, and now we encourage you to do them. Put in Isaiah's words where we call good evil and evil good. And that's where we're living today. Not only is our country giving hearty approval to what is vile to God, but now it's legalizing it, encouraging it, and then making it illegal if you do it, or if you counter it, rather. Never before has evil been so flagrant in our country. Never before has it been so legislated. Never before has the Bible been so misused in the public square. So you have government leaders actually quoting Jesus to defend their sin. Never before has the depraved mind become so entrenched in its evil lusts. And so it's just a matter of time before the reprieve that we've experienced as American Christians comes to an end. And so the question before us in this text, you can turn back to John 15, the question before us and the question that this text is asking each of us is this, are we ready with our witness in this downward spiral? So are we prepared to stand firm against the hatred this world might very soon wage against us personally? Like the apostles on this early Friday morning, we also need to be prepared for the trials and adversities that will become maybe our own, our own experience, perhaps even for the remainder of our lives in this world. So I want to take our time to work through this text. Here's the outline. I don't know how long this is going to take, but here's the outline. We'll first look at the satanic nature of gospel hatred. The satanic nature, we'll see that in verses 18 through 19. We'll focus here this morning. We'll then look at the many faces of gospel hatred. That's verse 20, the many faces, seeing the different ways the world tries to intimidate us into silence. We'll look at the different roots of gospel hatred, verses 21 and 23, why the world actually hates the gospel. We'll then have a reprieve even in the passage in verse 25. We read it. This all falls within the divine purpose of God. Praise the Lord for that. 
We'll look at the only answer for gospel hatred, verses 26 and 27. And then in chapter 16, we'll see the severe dangers of gospel hatred, why we must prepare ourselves for this coming, perhaps even persecution. It's sobering, it's necessary. So let's begin with that first point here, the satanic source of gospel hatred, the satanic source of gospel hatred, and there's so much application here, maybe even application you might not expect. Begin in verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, and there's no doubt in Jesus' words here, there's no doubt, translate it this way, because the world hates you, or if the world hates you, and it does, so there's no doubt. Jesus puts the word hate in the present tense, meaning this, the world's anger against Christ's people is the normal state of affairs. It's continual, it's persistent, it's inevitable. And this is a promise that runs through the New Testament, promises you'll never find on those Bible promise calendars, but these are promises. (laughs) Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3, indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you. And then he says as some strange thing were happening, this is not strange. This is not out of the norm. Jesus will explain why, look back to verse 18, because the inevitability of this hatred is not Jesus' point. Jesus' point here is the source of this anger, this hatred, the source, the energizing force behind all of this. If the world hates you, this is anger from the world. Not referring to the planet, not even re referring primarily to the people, though people are part of it, unbelievers, but not even primarily referring to them. The term world here is the word cosmos. It means order, order. Jesus is talking about an orderly system, specifically an orderly system of evil that's ruled by Satan. Think of John 12 and John 14. Jesus calls Satan the ruler, the prince, the king of over the world. You can turn the page in your Bible. John 16, 11, Jesus will say concerning judgment, the ruler of this world has been judged. The world is the evil world system. It's controlled by Satan himself, a reference to the underlying satanic influences that prizes godlessness in our society. The degrading, could even call it demonic immorality that is accepted and encouraged and legalized. The constant and permeating hatred for anything righteous. The world is the spiritual kingdom of darkness. Turn to John 17. It's no wonder 
that Jesus prays this, John 17, 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. And then this, verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from who? From the evil one. The world is the spiritual kingdom of darkness controlled by the devil. This is an amazing contrast from Verse 13, 15, 13, greater love is no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Christians are loved by Christ. A love that sacrifices itself unto death for us. But now Jesus warns of Satan's hatred for us that wants to kill us, not save us. Why does Satan, in his spiritual kingdom of wickedness, have so much angst against the believer? Finish verse 18. It is because it has hated me, Christ says. It has hated me before it hated you. So understand, the hatred we experience from this world is not primarily against us. It's not personal anger or personal attacks. No, it's motivated primarily by Satan's hatred against Jesus. So we're the collateral damage in this cosmic war Satan is waging against Christ. But Satan has a problem in this war. I think this problem enrages him even more. The problem is this. And this is why we are the collateral damage here. The problem is this. Though Satan wants to, he cannot pour out his anger directly on Jesus. Can't do it. Why? Because Jesus sits at the Father's right hand. He's too transcendent. He's too omnipotent. So the creator and the creature, distinction. Christ is outside of Satan's reach. And so what is Satan's only other play? What is his only other option? He must attack the only ones he can get to. He can't get to Christ. He must go after Christ's people. It's his only play. This is Paul's point in Colossians chapter one. Paul writes this. I do my share in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It's a very interesting statement. Because the last time I checked, nothing salvifically was lacking in Christ's afflictions. It is finished. There's no other sacrifice that needs to be offered. Nothing was lacking in his beatings, in his suffering, in his pain, in his crucifixion. But Paul says something was lacking. The question is, what was lacking there? What was missing The only answer is this, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is not his payment for sin. No, what is missing is that the ruler of this evil world system was not able to exhaust his anger upon Jesus. Satan still has more anger, more fury, more rage 
to pour out. And because he cannot get to Jesus, Paul says, I do my share. I stand in Jesus' place. Jesus stood in, in Paul's place to save him. But now we are called to stand in Christ's place as the ruler of this world pours out his fury against Jesus on us. This is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, we, this is group, believers as a whole, we are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. We're carrying out the dying of Jesus. Satan can't get to Jesus. He wants to, he can't. And so he does to us what he wants to do to Christ. Look at verse 19. 1519, Jesus says, if you are of the world, if you belong to this evil world system's ruler, if you are his, if you are part of his family, if you held Satan's values, if you supported Satan's sinful agenda, if you participated in the world's evil deeds, if you did not call out the world's sin or warn of coming judgment, if you didn't do any of that, Verse 19, the world would love its own. The world would love you, accept you. You'd experience Satan's love. You'd be spared Christ's enraging anger from Satan. But here's the problem. Continue verse 19. You, Jesus says, are not of the world. You no longer belong to Satan. You are a citizen of a different kingdom. Why? Because of a sovereign, gracious work that Christ did. I chose you out of the world. It's glorious. We have heaven. We have the spirit. We have Christ united to him. The heavenly fathers are our father. It's glorious. I chose you out of the world. However, the flip side, we're now in Satan's crosshairs because we've been handpicked by Jesus, delivered from Satan's evil domain. And thus we are a constant reminder of Satan's coming destruction and Satan's impotence to defeat King Jesus. Because, verse 19, because of this, because we belong to Christ, because of this, the world hates you. Christ is just simply summarizing what we see from the opening pages of Scripture. Starting in Genesis 4, we see Satan's unhinged rage against the triune God. Rage carried out on God's people. So think of Genesis 4. This is the first story after God dooms Satan in the garden. First story. Here's Satan's response. Genesis 4, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Received by God, dismissed by God. So here it is, Cain became very angry. He's filled with satanic hostility and aggression. And what does he do? Verse eight, 
When they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. This is rage. This is anger against God's people. How do we know this has been energized by the ruler of this world? Well, 1 John 3 puts it this way. Cain, who was of the evil one, energized by the evil one. Cain's hatred for Abel was satanically motivated and thus he slew his brother. This is why Jesus calls Satan a murderer from the beginning. That's a reference to Cain killing Abel. Satan was behind it all. That's why Peter calls Satan your adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Again, because Satan can't get to Jesus, he attacks Christ's people. Let's put in the words of 1 John 5. The whole world, the whole evil world system lies in the power of who? The evil one. Every unbeliever is simply carrying out the desires of their dark master, what looks like evil chaos in this world. We look at it, we see the news, we read what's going on, it's evil chaos. It is not. It is ordered. It is ordered evil. Satan is the prince, same word Jesus uses, the prince of the power, the king, the ruler of the power of the air. Watch now, the spirit that is now working in, energizing, organizing, leading the sons of disobedience. And that then becomes the paradigm for everything that follows, from Genesis 4 onward. God's people are persecuted by the children of Satan, who are energized by their father Satan, fulfilling the designs of Satan. That's the pattern, that's the paradigm. Think of Exodus 1. Now a new king arose over Egypt, idolatrous servant of the devil. He claimed to be the son of God. This new king did not know Joseph. He wanted nothing to do with God's covenants. He said to his people, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and, and see it as a son, then you shall put him to Death, the satanic murder of Abel now becomes the satanic plot to exterminate all of God's people. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're thrown into a fiery furnace. Daniel, thrown into a lion's den. Zechariah, stoned to death. Satanic rage against Christ carried out by Satan's children. When you come to the intertestamental period, those 400 years of silence between the Old and the New Testament, nothing is recorded in the scriptures, but we see this satanic persecution continuing. I'll give you one example. 169 BC, Antiochus IV, he enters Jerusalem with his army. He transforms the temple of Yahweh into a temple for Zeus. He declares the Jewish religion unlawful, all that predicted in Daniel 11. You think that would be enough? Antiochus was not done. 
He was not satisfied with defaming God's temple. So what does he do? He tries to eradicate God's people. Here's the history that's recorded. Now on the 15th day of Chislev, in the 145th year, the books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenants or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in, their, in the towns. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them and they hung the infants from their mother's necks. This is unhinged anger. This is gruesome, boundless, it's demonic. The book of Acts opens. Not only does this satanic gospel hatred continue, but it picks up speed. Acts 4, Peter and John are thrown into prison. Acts 5, the apostles were thrown into a public jail. Acts 7 and 8, Stephen is arrested and then stoned. It's persecution that then spreads to all believers. On that day, Acts 8, on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. Exactly what's predicted by Jesus in John 15. All in all, 16 of the 28 chapters in Acts, 16 of the 28 chapters in Acts include satanic hatred against Christ's people. Every apostle was persecuted. Every apostle. They were either crucified, slain by a sword, Stoned or speared to death. That's unhinged. The only apostle that did not die a martyr's death was John, and he was thrown again into Alcatraz. You'd think that's enough. It's enough. We try to get to Jesus, we're getting to his apostles, but it's not enough. Now those associated with the apostles experience this. And these are names you might not know. Aristarchus. I mean, no one's dressing up on Aristar- as Aristarchus for a wanna dress-up night, right? Bible f- figure. We don't know this person. But Aristarchus, imprisoned, why? Because of his faith in Christ. Epaphras, imprisoned. Timothy, imprisoned. Come to the late 60s. Satanic persecution becomes spore under Nero. Christians were burned as torches to light his gardens at night. And you ask the question, why that? Why burn them? Here's why. It's because the Christians believe that Christ would return in fire and judgment. And so Nero said, okay, I'll bring judgment and fire on you. Nero is the one who orders the beheading of the Apostle Paul. One historian wrote this, the first century was a difficult time for believers. Christian martyrdom became commonplace before the century was finished. That's why John says, do not be surprised. That's why Peter says it's no strange thing. But Satan's not done. His anger against Christ is still not exhausted. 
so he devours Polycarp, a disciple of John. He burns Polycarp at the stake. He's 80 years old. AD 177 in Lyons, France, Christians are arrested. They're thrown into the amphitheater to fight against wild beasts and gladiators. Again, remember that word, persecuted, being chased by a wild beast. That's not normal anger. AD 202, Emperor Severus signs a decree which forbids the conversion to Christianity. And if you're found to be a Christian, you confessed Christ to be your Lord, you are either, three things, three ways, either beheaded, forced to have boiling tar poured on your heads, or you are burned. Those are your three options. Fast forward to the early 300s. Church experienced the most violent of persecution. This is Roman Emperor Diocletian. Under his rule, churches were demolished, the scriptures were burned, Christians were massacred. In fact, satanic anger was such a part of the Christian life during this time, there are documents preserved that show the church deliberately trained its members for martyrdom. As a part of their Sunday school classes, new believers were taught principles of persecution as soon as they entered the Christian life. Fast forward to the time of the Reformation, 1500s. You have martyrs, one in particular, John Hopper, let me... Read how he died. He was fastened to the stake by an iron round his waist and fought his last fight with the king of terrors. Of all the martyrs, none perhaps suffered more than Hooper did. Three times the sticks had to be lighted because they would not burn properly. Three quarters of an hour, the noble sufferer endured the mortal agony, as Fox says, neither moving backward, forward, nor to any side, but only praying. And praying, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And beating his breast with one hand till it was burned to a stump. And so the good bishop of Gloucester passed away. This is one example. This is not normal anger. This is unhinged anger. I hope we're feeling the weight of this cosmic satanic battle that Satan is waging against Christ, but he can't get to Christ. The point of John 15 is that Jesus promises a hatred against his people that is unapologetic, an anger that knows no bounds, and an enemy who will do the unthinkable and the cruel. Let's bring it to today, today, it's no different. Satan's anger has still not been exhausted. The world is still in his evil lap. And thus, today, here's the statistics. Today, throughout the world, 13 Christians are killed for their faith every day. 13 Christians every day. 12 Christian buildings are attacked every day. 12 Christians are arrested or imprisoned every day. Five Christians are abducted, kidnapped because of their faith every day. That's what's taking place. 
It is estimated right now 309 million Christians. So just let the number sink in. 309 million Christians live in places designated as very high or extremely high for levels of persecution. 309 Christians, 309 million Christians. This is the satanic source of gospel hatred. It has no parallel. No matter the continent, from the Middle East to Europe to Asia, no matter the century, from the first century until today, the ruler of this evil world system has not stopped pouring out his wrath against Jesus by raging against Christ's people. And yes, we have experienced a reprieve from this kind of satanic hatred. But please know this. None of our founding documents, none of our founding documents are powerful enough to shield us from it forever. Satan's rage and all of its fury will come to us. So it leads us to application. Application. How does recognizing the satanic nature of gospel hatred prepare us to face it? How does recognizing the satanic nature of gospel hatred prepare us to face it? I'm gonna give you three ways. First of all, recognizing the satanic nature of this worldly hatred should, should create in us a heart not of anger and not of revenge, but a heart of compassion for those who rage against us. We should be filled with compassion. Why? Why? Because when we realize our enemies are sitting in the lap of the evil one and trapped and bound within the devil's domain and doing what their evil ruler wants them to do, we should be humbled. Why? Because we once lived in that same domain. That's where we were. We once followed that same evil ruler until... Jesus says, I chose you, I saved you. I delivered you out of the domain of darkness. So we were there. And so what must our response be? It cannot, it cannot be returning hatred for hatred. It cannot be returning evil for evil. That's never been the answer, ever. The only appropriate response to satanic Christ-hating anger is christ Modeling compassion. Listen to 1 Peter chapter two. For you have been called for this purpose. What purpose, Peter? The purpose of filling up the satanic afflictions on behalf of Christ. That's our purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So Christ is our example now of how we respond to Satan's anger. What did Christ do? Here it is, verse 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. So what you're saying is I need to be a doormat. I can't revile in return? 
While suffering, he uttered no threats. That's how Christ responded. In fact, he repaid evil with what? With, with good. He uttered no threats. No, what does he say? Well, on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. It's the compassion of Christ. Do we truly believe Romans chapter two? That it is the kindness of God, the kindness, the compassion of God that leads to repentance. We need to be filled with Christ-like compassion. It's the first way we respond, knowing the satanic nature and source of this anger, number two. Second application. When we, we remember the satanic nature of gospel hatred, we are reminded that the only successful weapon in this spiritual battle is the gospel of Jesus. It alone has the power to break Satan's chains and convert Satan's children. Here's how Paul puts it, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. The cosmic war we're engaged in needs a spiritual weapon. And this weapon is not a politician. And it's not more laws. No, no. Verse four, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not of this world. They're better, why? They're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So this is cosmic war battle language. And Paul says, here's our strategy in this war. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Our calling is to proclaim the gospel of Christ and in so doing, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's our strategy. We win this war when we proclaim Jesus. This is Reformation weekend. Let's put in the words of Martin Luther. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And then this one little word, one little, the word of the gospel, the word of Christ, shall fell him. That's our hope. The only successful weapon in the satanic war against Christ is the gospel of Jesus. That's where we must put our efforts and our trust. And then application number three. Application number three. Realizing the satanic nature of gospel hatred reminds us of the necessity to pray for one another to pray for those in this room, to 
Pray for those around the world who are right now in the throes of this evil world system's hatred. And that's the application Paul draws in Ephesians chapter six, because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not our struggle. Our struggle is against the rulers, against the powers, against the, wor- the world for, of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's our battle. It's where the war is waged. And if that is true, the satanic source, energy, if that is true, then verse 18 must also be true for us. Therefore, with all prayer, and petition, we must pray at all times in the spirit. We are not powerful in and of ourselves to overcome this anger. We need the spirit's work. And thus we must be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. How foolish to think we can withstand the enemy's hatred on our own. We need one another, which brings us right back to Jesus' call in verses 12 through 17. We need to love one another because we pray for those whom we love. I know we want to take up weapons. We want to do something strong. Scriptures tell us, put on compassion. Proclaim the gospel pray. Are we preparing ourselves for this worldly gospel hatred? That's the question. We'll keep asking that question as we work our way through. And the answer is yes, when we recognize the satanic source of gospel hatred and then arm ourselves with Christ-like compassion, ready ourselves with bold proclamation of the gospel and then devote ourselves to praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are the weapons that are divinely powerful. Father, you have given us a sobering reminder from your son here. And there's obviously so much more to say and so much more scripture to look at. Pray, Lord, that as we think through these things, We'll not be lulled to what we've experienced for so many years in our country. But instead we be prepared, prepared for what's coming, but even fulfilling these applications now. Right now, showing compassion to the unbeliever. Right now, being bold for the gospel right now, praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for that privilege of filling up what was lacking in your afflictions for the sake of your name and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.